Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn to Psalm 61. Psalm 61 this morning. I know that you are glad to have your pastor back so that you don't have to wonder who's going to be in the pulpit today. <laughs> so, uh, Psalm 61. And uh, we're going to look at the whole thing, all eight verses. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Let us pray. Our Father, we are awed and we marvel that we can call you the God of the universe, our Father. We thank you that you gave up your only Son to save us. We thank you that you have given Holy Spirit to be with us forever. We thank you that you have revealed your mind to us in your word. So we pray, Father, that now through your word preached, that we all would be built up in our most holy faith, that any here who are unrepentant would be given the grace to repent, and that with the eye of faith we would all see Jesus, the King of this cosmos. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you are a regular reader of the Psalms, and you should be, you might think that Psalm 61 sounds a lot like many of the other Psalms that David writes. David feels very far away from God. He's oppressed by his enemies, and he prays for God to be faithful and to deliver him from his troubles. Sounds like a lot of things that David writes in the Psalms. Many of his Psalms have these same themes. So what is it that is distinctive about Psalm 61? I did what preachers are supposed to do, and I read a handful of commentators in preparing for this sermon, and I found that a lot of them struggled to find something distinctive about this Psalm as well. But I kept at it. And as the Lord normally does, you just got to keep at it and press into the text. And then finally, there's this aha moment. And it's like, bingo, illumination. Now I can see what's going on, what's distinctive here. In this psalm, there is a very clear progression that happens through the psalm. It's why we've titled the sermon, From World's End to Enthroned. David he is at the very ends of the earth when he writes this psalm. 
and he expresses his hope uh, as he's at the ends of the earth. He expresses his hope that God will lift him up onto a very high rock away from his enemies. But mere deliverance to a high rock isn't enough for David. He goes further. He goes further and says, not only does he want to live, be on a high rock, he wants to dwell in God's tent. But living in God's tent isn't enough either. He goes even further and says that he will be enthroned in God's very presence because of God's covenant faithfulness. There is this progression in the psalm from David being at the very ends of the world to coming right onto the temple mount in the middle of God's, or the tent at that time, not the temple yet, in the middle and enthroned in God's covenant presence forever. And it's this progression that led Spurgeon to say of this psalm, I should have read him first, it took me a while to get to him. It's this progression that led him to say, Thus, he who began at the foot of the rock, half drowned and almost dead, is here led to the summit, and sings as a priest abiding in the tabernacle, a king ruling with God forever, and a prophet foretelling good things to come. God's anointed goes from fainting at the end of the world to living forever as king before God. That's the progression of this psalm. Now, in many of David's psalms, we have clues about the historical situation into which David uh, wrote. Sometimes the, the uh, beginning of the psalm will say, David wrote this psalm when he was fleeing from Saul. You know that. But this psalm could have been written in any one of a number of circumstances in David's life. It could be that he wrote this psalm while he was on the run from Saul. Remember, David had been anointed as king by Samuel, and he started having victories and started gaining a following, and this made Saul jealous. So David had to run into the wilderness shortly after his anointing. He had to hide from Saul because Saul wanted to kill him. So this psalm could fit easily into the second half of of 1 Samuel, but it could also fit into the second half of 2 Samuel. After David sins with Bathsheba, Absalom, his own son, sought to kill David and to take the throne. And what was David forced to do? He's forced to leave Jerusalem. He has to go on the run again, away from his own throne, away from the tent of God in Jerusalem. He could have prayed this psalm during that time. There could be another situation we don't know about that led David to write this psalm. But the fact that we don't know the particular historical situation illustrates, in my view, one of the great wonders of God's Word. God has so written His Word that the very same words can apply in multiple different life situations. The words of the same psalm can hit home to Christians who feel swallowed up by their own sin. And yet those same words can also speak to Christians who are enduring unbearable loneliness. The same words can speak to the Christian who's standing at the crossroads of a major life decision. And also to the Christian wondering what in the world they did to cause their children to walk away from God. It's a great glory of God's Word. The same words apply in multiple situations, and this psalm is no exception. There's three things I want us to see out of this text this morning, real easy to remember. The rock, the tent, and the throne. The rock, the tent, and the throne. So first, the rock. We see this in verses 1 through 3. This psalm is a prayer to God, but notice in verse 1 that 
that David dispenses with the pleasantries and gets right to the point. Uh, he's so bold that he even commands God to listen right out of the gate. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. David had boldness in his approach to God because many of his psalms start this abruptly. It's almost as if he had an inkling of what we have in Jesus Christ that we can approach the throne of God boldly to receive mercy and grace in time of help and need. He doesn't start out with our Father who art in heaven. He just comes out saying, help me. I'm particularly encouraged by how the poetry of verse 1 works. Very often in the Psalms and in other poetry of the Old Testament, the writer will arrange his poem in groups of two lines. And in these groups of two lines, the second line will restate and help explain the first line. And that happens here in verse 1, and so I want us to notice how knowing an academic point like how Hebrew poetry works actually has relevance for your life. God is into grammar. It's important to Him. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. Do you see? If the second line is a restatement of the first line, then what has David said? David has said that crying out to God and praying can be the exact same thing. Have you ever been so far at the end of your rope? Of course you have. Been so far at the end of your rope that you just cried out to God and there's not really any words that you can find to express what's really going on in your heart? Did you know that even when you cry out to God and you can't find the words to express what you really feel, did you know that God actually hears that as prayer and that He actually knows the words that you can't speak? That's exactly what the great letter of Romans says, isn't it? Romans chapter 8. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That is, those of us who groan in such a way that we can't find the words, the Spirit intercedes for us. What a wonderful reassurance that when I'm at the end of my rope and I can only cry and groan before God, He understands exactly what I'm saying in my heart because the Holy Spirit is interceding for me. We see in verse 2 while David is crying out in prayer like this. He's at the end of the earth and his heart is fainting. It could be that when David says that he's at the end of the earth, that he, he truly is at the very end of the land given to Israel. That would make sense if he's, you know, hanging around down there in the Dead Sea because he had to run away from Saul. But David could just as easily be speaking metaphorically like we do. In our moments when we cry out to God, does it not feel like we're at the end of the world and we're separated from everything good? And in such times, don't we feel that we have a heart that is on the, the verge of breaking? Of course, all Christians know this feeling. It doesn't mean you're unsaved when you go through this experience. It is part of normal Christian experience to have times when, for whatever reason, we feel like we're about to be swallowed up by darkness. 
and we feel that we're at the very ends of the world. That's normal. So David calls out to God in this state, and he begs God. Second half of verse 2, he says, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Why is it that David would want to go to this high rock? Well, the reason is in verse 3. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. We, we see here the last line of verse 3. What, what's prompted this whole crying out episode? Some sort of enemy is oppressing David and his only deliverance will be if God takes him out of the far off wilderness and places him on top of a high rock away from the reaches of the enemy. But notice who David identifies as the rock. What does he say? Verse 3, lead me to the rock that is higher than I for you have been my refuge. God himself is the rock that is higher than David. God himself is the refuge in the strong tower. When we're at the end of our rope crying out to God, we need God more than anything else. Of course, we'd like the situation to be resolved. But really, we need God. Whoever the enemy is, whether it's a person who's doing us wrong or whether Satan is assaulting us with temptation or Remembrances of past sin, long forgiven, it's God we need to lift us up onto Himself. He's the rock who's higher than we are. So that's the rock. Second, the tent. The tent. That's verses 4 and 5. It's a wonderful blessing to have refuge in God, our rock, but David wants even more of God. He doesn't want to be merely protected from the enemy. David says, he goes further, and he says, verse 4, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. What is this tent that David is talking about here? Well, David's speaking of the tabernacle. Remember, during David's life, Israel's temple is not yet built. God's covenant presence dwells in the tabernacle. It's the tent that was made by Israel under Moses in the wilderness. David doesn't want to be merely protected by God. David wants to live where God lives. And God's covenant presence dwelt in that tabernacle. David often expresses a desire to live where God lives in the Psalms. I absolutely love Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple or to meditate in His temple. David longed to live in God's house and to look upon God and inquire or meditate upon God. He puts the same truth in another way. In the second half of verse 4, he says, let me, take, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. This phrase, under the shelter of your wings, it's picturing a mother bird protecting her young. It could even be, some have said that this is a reference. Remember the Ark of the Covenant, what was it that sat on top on the mercy seat? It was two cherubim with their wings outstretched over the mercy seat. And some have even said here that this could be a reference to the cherubim. And God wanting, and David wanting to take refuge in God's covenant presence represented by the wings of the cherubim on the mercy seat. The picture of being sheltered under God's wings is used vividly in the book of Ruth. When Ruth clung to Naomi 
and left her home country of Moab to go to Naomi's home in Israel to go from the ends of the earth, from Gentile country to go into God's covenant land. When Ruth does that, Boaz praises her for her loyalty. And he praises Ruth by saying, in Ruth 2, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then, you remember the story in, when uh, uh, Ruth goes and she lays down at Boaz's feet to give herself to Boaz because he is the redeemer of the household. And she looks at him and she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. The outstretched wings of God speak to God's covenant redeeming presence. To be under God's wings is to be redeemed and to live in covenant relationship with God. So what is the ground for David's request to live in God's house? Verse 5, it's that David has been bound to God by a covenant. David has made vows to God arising out of this covenant relationship. And in return, God gave David a heritage. He gave him a heritage. That heritage is the land of Israel itself. The, the Old Testament speaks of Israel's land as, 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 as Israel's heritage. If you like, God's house stood on God's land. Just like right, our houses stand on our land. If you've got a farm or a hobby farm, right, this is my house and it's on my land. right? Same idea. God made a covenant with Israel to bring them onto his land, and David expresses that he wants to dwell on that land in God's house. When we're at the end of the earth crying out to God, don't we really just wish that God would just kind of come and pluck us up out of the world? Just disappear. That's why it's so good for pastors to go on sabbatical. Because like, I could disappear from the world for a while. It's a lovely thing about the Sabbath. We get to disappear from the world for a whole day every week. <clears throat> I confess in my experience that when I'm at the end of my rope, I really wish God would just come and get me and put me in his house. That's one of the reasons why it is so good for us to worship both publicly and privately when we're at the end of our rope, when we're at the end of the earth. When you're suffering... Don't stay away from the church. The church on earth worshiping is a picture of the heavenly reality to come. And it is a foretaste of what we will be doing forever. And though you struggle to enjoy it often now, you will enjoy it forever and ever then. We will be gazing upon God and meditating upon Him in His own house. Those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus are in covenant with God. And that means that we have every right, by God's own decree, to live in God's house and to take refuge under the shelter of His wings. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we receive not only God as a rock to protect us from the enemy, but we also receive God as the owner of the most glorious house that there ever will be. But wait, like the infomercial is, but wait, there's more. 
Verses 6 through 8, the throne. The throne. It's not enough for David to be protected. It's not enough for David to dwell in God's house. David has the audacity to pray that he would be enthroned as a king in God's house forever. Verses 6 and 7. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. David's prayer takes him from the very ends of the earth into the very throne room of God. And David, as God's anointed, expects to reign as a king in God's covenant presence. Notice the last line of verse 7. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. When you see those two words together in the Old Testament, steadfast love and faithfulness, those words clue you in that God's covenant is in view. David expresses his desire to reign before God while in covenant with God. And we know from the story of David that both in the matters of Saul and Absalom, David was restored to his throne. God, in his covenant love, conquered David's enemies. Even when David had sinned abysmally, God, in his covenant love, still conquered David's enemies, brought him back to God's house, and put him on the throne in Jerusalem. Notice, again, very closely, look at the second line in verse 6 and the first line in verse 7. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Who's David talking about? David, when he wrote this psalm, well, David ultimately died. And he knew when he wrote this psalm that he was going to die. He knew when he wrote this psalm that he would not live forever. So who is he talking about? David is talking about a king who will come after him, who will live forever, and will reign before God, world without end. He's talking about Jesus Christ. The one descended from David, according to the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, or if you will, our King. I'm captivated by the fact that the progression of this psalm is the progression of our Lord's whole life. He comes into the world as a baby, and what must happen immediately? There's a usurper on the throne who hears that the king of the Jews has been born. And what does he seek to do? He seeks to kill him immediately. So what does Jesus have to do when he's born? He has to go on the run out of his homeland into Egypt because his enemies are after him. He has to go out to the ends of the earth. And when he's finally allowed to come back to his homeland, where does he live? Galilee, backwater country in the first century. Away from the temple in Jerusalem. He can't come to Jerusalem. He grows up at the ends of the earth. 
And then when he begins his public ministry, what happens? He is baptized by John the Baptist. He's anointed as king by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit as his baptism. And then what happens immediately? Does he go and take the throne in Jerusalem? No. Immediately the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He goes again to the ends of the earth. To be tempted by the greatest enemy, Satan. He spends much of his ministry in Galilee. And when he does venture to Jerusalem during those three years, what's happening? He's hiding from those seeking to kill him. Because his time has not yet fully come. And the whole thing comes to a crescendo when he comes into Jerusalem on the last week of his life. He comes in on Palm Sunday and everybody's saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Here comes the king. The king is finally coming. He's been at the ends of the earth for his whole life. And now he's coming into Jerusalem and he's going to be enthroned before God forever. But he's finally captured by his enemies. He's put through a sham trial. And then he's murdered on a cross. And where is it that Jesus goes while he's on that cross? Jesus goes to the very ends of the earth on the cross. Far, far away from God. That He might atone for our sins. I mean, you can almost hear Him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And on the cross, hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. That is not far off from my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what comes after Jesus' sacrificial death for us? What does it say? Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and what? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's enthroned in God's very presence. Jesus, after He dies for us, He resurrects, He ascends to heaven for us, into the very house of God. It says that, he ascended into heaven, and it's almost as if the heavens split apart, and he goes and he sits down at God's right hand to serve as our high priest forever, to serve as our king forever. Psalm 61 is the story of Jesus' whole life. And I want us to consider a final aspect as we close this morning. This psalm is the story of a Christian's whole life as well. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He goes and insults his father, basically saying, I wish you were dead. Give me the inheritance. I want the inheritance now. And what happens? What does he do? He runs off into a far-off country at the end of the world, and he squanders everything. He's at the ends of the earth. He, he is reduced to literally feeding on the filth all around him. He's laying down there eating the pig's food because nobody will give him any food. But then something happens. Something happens and it's like a light clicks. And he goes, you know, I need to get out of this situation. What can I do? And he says, you know, I, I can go back to my father. I know my father. I know the character of my father, and I can go back to my father, and I can say, though I have insulted you, though I have wished you were dead, please bring me back into your house, and I'll be a servant. Just let me live in your house. 
so that I can eat. He says, I'm at the end of the earth. I've got to get out of here. Maybe I can get into my dad's home. But when he comes back home, does he merely live in the father's house? No. In fact, he finds out he didn't know just how wonderful his father really is. What happens when the son is coming back? He says, Father, I've sinned against you. Be quiet. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This my son was lost and is now found. He will be clothed like a king and he will rule over my house. If you are a Christian, this is your story. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were made alive together with Christ. And what does Ephesians say? That, that God raised us up with Christ and did what? Seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Christians go from the very end of the world to reigning with Christ forever in God's house as sons and daughters. If you're not a Christian, why not? You got... 30, 40 years of enjoying something here to compare with reigning with Christ forever? Really? That's what you're giving up reigning with Christ forever for? Who would refuse this king? The one who says that they've insulted me. They've rebelled against me and I'm still going to make them my children and make them reign in my house. Come to Christ by faith and the story from going from wallowing in your own sin. I mean, aren't you tired of feeding on the filth around you? Aren't you tired of that? I mean, I don't try to feed on the filth around me. I still do from time to time. I hate it. Aren't you tired of making that the practice of your life? Come to Christ by faith in this story of going from wallowing in your own sin to reigning for, with Christ forever. That's yours. That's all it is. It's totally free. And when we come to Him by faith, knowing this story to be ours, it gives us joy in verse 8. Right? I didn't forget about verse 8. When you know that this is your story, that's what leads you to, to joy in the Christian life, and you find it not a burden. So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. How else could I respond to such a king and rejoice in him? We praise him forever. We delight to obey in him, obey him every day. What an indescribable gift. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that it pierces to the very dividing joints and marrow. We're thankful, Father, that you have sent Jesus Christ, the one who encompasses the entirety of the Scriptures. And we pray that in whatever situations are, Father, that we would see this King know that we are enthroned with Him and it's just waiting for us. As we pass through this short life, we pray that we would grow in joy and holiness before you until the day that we can look upon our King and we can reign with Him forever. In Jesus' name.